Our study is Luke 9, 46 to 56, and we'll just read a few verses at a time, one paragraph at a time, since we have three incidents here. The first one is verses 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you desire humility and a contrite spirit in the inner man. You desire us to tremble at your word. We pray that we'll acknowledge who you are and your greatness, your sovereignty, your power, your wisdom in all things, and we would understand our place before you. May we not rise up against one another, and especially, Lord, may we not rise up against you. For you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you alone have redemption, and you alone are infinite in your wisdom and inscrutable in all your knowledge. We confess that. Now we pray that this evening we'll understand this in greater detail and be more committed to it. Inculcate this also in us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Now, the first paragraph will emphasize the need for us to be humble people. And this is fitting in the context because the last couple of incidents in this chapter had to do with greatness, Christ's greatness, and even the disciples' greatness, at least three of them, because they saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Three of them experienced it, but the other ones did not. And whenever these kinds of things happen, whenever people praise us, whenever great things happen to us, whenever we benefit by the gifts of God, the blessings of God, it's very easy for pride to well up within us. And this is probably what happened to the disciples, and this is why Verse 46, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Notice there that because of these great things, the uh, accolades that the people have been uh, showering on them and recognizing who they were, being associated with Christ, it wasn't enough for all of them to consider themselves equals in, the, in opposition to the people. Of course, in a sense, positionally and in terms of redemption, they had something more than the people had. But it was not something to gloat over because what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? First Corinthians 4, 7. So they should have had that attitude and an attitude of deference toward one another among the 12 disciples. But they don't have that. And it shows how deep-rooted is human pride within, the, uh, within our hearts that we would even try to stomp down those around us so that people look up to us and look down at other people. And that's why this argument arises. Which one of them, among the twelve, which one is the greatest? They are around Christ, but it doesn't dawn on them because their pride overwhelms them and smothers any kind of humility they might have being a disciple of Christ and being around Christ. They don't think about that. And they don't think about the gift of God and the grace of God. They think about how great they are. It says in 47, But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them. First, we notice that Jesus knows what they were thinking. It is likely, 
even based on the parallel accounts from Matthew 18, 1-6 and Mark 9, 33-37, from these accounts, it's likely that they were talking about these things at a distance and not so close to Jesus so that Jesus did not overhear it. Because if Jesus would have overheard it, they know Jesus would have confronted them and rebuked them then and there. He wouldn't have been letting up at all with them. He would have given them what they needed to hear. Well, they forgot to consider that Jesus is both God and man. And the Father reveals things to the Son. And so as deity and as humanity, they forgot to consider His dual nature. One person in two natures, fully God and fully man, yet without sin. They forgot that, and that's what we all often do. When we sin against God, even within our hearts or as we speak and whatever we do, whether it's in public or in private, what we forget are the, the three uh, attributes of God that are non-transferable, the incommunicable attributes of God. We forget His omnipotence, we forget His om- omnipresence, and we forget His omniscience. He's all-powerful, He's present all, everywhere, and He knows everything. He doesn't learn anything. That escaped them because sin had overtaken them. It, it uh, overtook them to such an extent that they forgot who God is, even when God was pr- physically present there in the person of Christ. So Jesus takes a child to be an example. We have to notice also that Jesus didn't let the argument stay with them. Even though they didn't announce the content of their argument to him, he knew what it was. He didn't let it stay with them. What he knew, he confronted. Jesus does this all the time. Even when it is not announced by his opponent or his detractor, when it's not even announced, he can see it in their look. He can see it from their associations. He understands as they're approaching, they're coming to test him with questions, difficult questions. He knows who these people are. He knows that they are unrepentant. He can tell whether they're coming in pride or humility, whether they have a sincere and humble question or whether they come with an arrogant and spiteful question to trip him up and to make him look like a fool. He knows that. And in either case, in both cases, he deals with it. The point is, Jesus is not an evasive teacher. Jesus is not an evasive person. And neither should we be evasive. We are very, very prone to avoiding conflict. Whenever there's a, an ounce of conflict or a scent of conflict around, we want to avoid it completely. When we shouldn't. We have to be self-controlled enough and sober-minded enough to know, okay, now this is about to happen. What should I do? How should I be? What does the Word say I should do? What did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? These are the questions we should be asking whenever we anticipate a conflict, a disagreement an argument, a quarrel. Whenever we anticipate it, that's the way we should be. We should not have knee-jerk reactions. But we shouldn't avoid it either, being completely quiet. Jesus didn't do it that way. He addressed it. And what did he do? He said, whoever, 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. Whoever receives this child in my name. In Matthew 18, 18, he says, one of these little ones 
who believe in me. One of these little ones who believe in me. He's not looking at the normal and natural weaknesses and sins of the child. He's looking at the humble condition in which a child is in comparison to the more sophisticated, the aged, and the wise of the world, the adults. That's the comparison he's making. That's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he's also making the comparison of the child who believes. Because it says even here, in my name receives me. If you treat a believer, a humble believer like a child is, and you treat a, a believing child and, and even a believing adult, both ha- have the similarity of humility. If you treat them the way you should, you are treating God the way you should. That is, those who represent God, whether believers or ministers, whoever it is, when you receive them in the proper way, you are receiving Christ. That's a big statement. Why? Why is that the case? Because they are a part of the body of Christ. He's the head and they are the body. And if we're a part of the body, we have to treat our body properly. We don't have the right hand picking up a hammer and hitting the left hand and and bruising it and making it bleed, right? We don't have things like that happening. We treat the other hand properly. And that's the way we should treat one another. We ought to, with humility, with love, love your neighbor as yourself, or love your brother, lay down your life for your brother, see what needs he has, and, and supply his needs according to the will of God. And then, he not only says, whoever receives, uh, this child in my name receives me, he says, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Well, who sent Christ? The Father. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. First John 4 so, if, for 14 and 15, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, if He sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, the way we treat a believer in Christ is the way we treat uh, Christ. And if we are treating Christ in a dishonorable way, in a proud way, in an arrogant and spiteful way, we're also treating God that way. He is increasing the magnitude of this sin. He's increasing the seriousness of this sin, which is necessary for us to deal with the sin. Because we know that we have to face God the Father, we will have to face Him on the day of judgment by means of His Son. He appointed His Son to be His judge on the day of judgment. And whatever the Son does on the day of judgment is what the Father wants the Son to do on the day of judgment. We're going to face Him, for we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We're all going to face that. He is saying here, as an antidote to sin, to prevent sin and even to cure sin, think about who you are offending. You're not only offending the Son, which should be bad enough, you are offending God the Father, and you will be held accountable for that offense. Unless you are forgiven in Christ, you will be held accountable for that offense. It's God the Father. This should cause each of us to be humble, to be God-fearing, and also never to minimize sin even the smallest of sins, right? To make a comparison, whether we steal a pencil or whether we steal a million dollars, both are sins. 
we like to console ourselves, our consciences, by saying, well, it was just a pencil. It wasn't a million dollars. And I'm not as bad as that other man who stole a million dollars. Well, it's a sin to steal a million, and it is a great sin, but it's also a sin to steal a pencil and then to excuse it. Because he who keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. James 2.10 He's guilty of all. It only takes one sin to offend God. Whether it's a small one or a major one, it only takes one to offend Him, to transgress His laws, and for His wrath to be meted out upon us. After all, in the Garden of Eden, did it not take only one sin? Only one sin that plunged us all into ruin and misery? So, that's why Jesus compares it this way. So that it will be uh, an antidote and a preventative measure to keep us from sinning against God the Father. Then he says, For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. You, you see, he's contradicting the world with this. The world loves a show. The world loves riches. It loves power. It loves the pedigree. It loves ancestry. It loves degrees. It loves um, uh, ability to exert power and authority, whether it's to fire somebody from a company or whether it's the ability of a one military to conquer another military and to boast in their um, military prowess and abilities. This is the way that the world works. And yet the kingdom of God doesn't work that way. To be great in the kingdom of God requires one to be least or humble, to, to make de ha uh, have deference or practice deference towards one another. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about putting our name front in the front and center. It's about putting God front and center, His glory, not our glory. And this is the way to be great in God's kingdom, not any other way. God's ways are completely contrary to man's ways. Jesus has, uh, has taught uh, much about this throughout the, the Gospels. For example, in Luke 16, 15, he says, we can actually begin in Luke 16, 14. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Luke 16, 15. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Why should God let you into heaven because you have a piece of gold? Why should He let you into heaven because you have uh, a family of five or ten children? Why should God let you into heaven because your name is John or Abraham or Elizabeth? Why should God let you into heaven because you accomplish certain other great feats in, in life? You, you rescued ten soldiers. You, you kept away from all of the major vices of the world. You kept away from murder, adultery, theft. You kept away from all this. You never bowed down to an idol. Okay, these things are good in their place, but why should God give you eternal life and forgiveness of sins when you have transgressed Him 
day by day by day, numerous times, why should he give you heaven for a piece of gold? Who thinks of God that way but pagans? Idolaters think of God that way, but not the God of the Bible. God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Who has given to him that he should be paid back? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forevermore. Amen. So, God doesn't need and want any of this. He wants to see us in His Son, Christ, justified by faith in Christ. And that justification produces humility. We understand we were nothing. We have been made something, not by our works, but by His grace, 100%. And this is how we should live our life. Constantly putting down the flesh, constantly putting down pride and arrogance, and always exalting God. Nothing should matter except Him. We continue, verses 49 to 50. This pride did not get beaten down enough. 49 to 50, another incident or conversation arises. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. John, the beloved disciple, he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Okay, he's doing a good deed. That's right. He's doing it in the name of Christ. That's right. But what was the problem? What was the hang-up? We tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. The assumption here is that if you're going to do the Lord's work, you can only be in a select group of disciples and followers of one master or this master Christ at that time. Well, what about others who were in a faraway place, in a town or a city out, um, on one side of Israel or the other side of Israel, on one side of the Jordan or the other side of the Jordan River? Are they supposed to all also leave everything behind, leave their whole families behind, leave their occupations behind? Is everybody supposed to be in this group of the twelve with Jesus? No. That's a false assumption. This gets into the problem that we have with personalities. There is an intense and depraved desire for personalities. There's, there are personality cults everywhere within Christianity. It's in the world too. But it's also in Christianity because it's a fleshly, uh, sinful thing. And it's a part of human nature to be following personalities instead of following Christ and following the Word of Christ and examining everything anybody says by the Word of Christ. Personalities. Personality cults, we, we know the most common example of that was in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, he, the Apostle Paul has heard of quarrels among them. And he says, 1 Corinthians 1.12, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. And we pick this up in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of 
Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. This is the right attitude. The attitude is we shouldn't be putting one man above another. What our focus should be is Christ and that God causes the growth and others are ministers and agents of God to carry out God's will, to preach and teach the word. Now, one clarification. When Paul mentioned Apollos and Cephas and Paul, he, he didn't mean that Cephas and Apollos were teaching false doctrine and that you cannot make a distinction and say so-and-so is a false teacher, as though you can't name names. He's not saying that. We know that the Bible names names from Genesis to Revelation, from Cain to the Nicolaitans in Revelation chapter 2. The Bible names names of false teachers and heretics all the time. But Paul's not talking about that, and even here, Jesus is not talking about that. Jesus is not talking about that. They're talking about true teachers of the gospel, but they don't happen to be in your circle or in your neighborhood or whatever. Or <clears throat> that's the sense in which he's talking about that. He's talking about true teachers who have been made into personality cults. That should not happen. And usually it's the followers who cause it. Sometimes it's the teachers and the followers who do it together. But often it is the followers who do that. Well, Jesus' answer to John's statement is verse 50. He says, But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. He who is not against you is for you. He's not working against you. He's not a false teacher. He's not doing it in the name of a false god. He's casting out demons. That's not an evil deed. Therefore, because you know he's doing it in my name, he's a true teacher, he's doing a good deed, don't hinder him. He's not against us. So if he's not against us with falsehoods and with a mas masquerading himself, he's not doing anything like that. So he's for us. So don't be against him. If he's working for the true gospel, don't be against him. There too, Jesus deals with pride. Pride of name, pride of followership. Now, another issue. Here too, there's something internal wrong. And because of the context, we have to assume that the problem in this next passage also was something internal and motives. Um, and you'll understand why I'm stressing that point in a moment. So verse 51. And it came about... When days were approaching for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, and they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. 
And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Well, Jesus is now approaching the time for his ascension. 51 says, his ascension. When Luke says ascension, it literally is his taking up. His taking up. And in what sense could Luke mean this? Well, we know from Acts chapter 1, whenever he uses this phrase, taking up, that he's talking about the actual ascension, what we call the ascension. But before the ascension has to take place, there are other events that have to take place. He needs to be arrested and tortured and impaled on a cross. And then he needs to be buried for three days. And then he needs to rise from the dead. He needs to appear over a period of 40 days to his disciples until his ascension. All of this needs to happen. That's the way I take this phrase for his ascension. Not just going up into heaven, but all that leads up to that. Even the physical going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was on a mountain. Even including all that. That's why he says to go to Jerusalem. Everything that's related to our redemption. We see here in 51 a very important word. It says, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had resolve, complete and utter resolve. He wasn't wimpy and weak about it. He wasn't second-guessing the, the purposes of God for his life and even for the redemption of his people. He wasn't doing any of that. He was completely resolved. He had full conviction that he was going to do and needed to do the will of God. And he does this, or Luke explains it in this figure, set his face to go to Jerusalem. That means that he was on that straight path. He wasn't looking to the right. He wasn't looking to the left. He wasn't bewildered. He wasn't anxious. He was resolved to go where he needed to go, to the place where he needed to go. Just as we are called to walk on the straight path and not turn to the right or to the left. Uh, Jesus did that. He did that literally, and He did that spiritually for us. That's how dedicated He was. This is alluded to in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus did. And also we ought to do, because he says in verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus did not grow weary and lose heart. He persevered until the end. That's what Luke is describing. At this point in the book of Luke, the events that happen, happen with Jesus going from the north in the areas of Galilee and then through Samaria, which was between, the region of Samaria was between Galilee and Judea. And Jerusalem is in Judea. So he's going from north to south, and he's going through Samaria. Here we see 
that there's a problem that arises. He sent messengers on ahead of him. Messengers on ahead to make arrangements and preparations because they have to find those agreeable and those friendly enough to host them, to give them lodging, to find a place to lodge. And he sends these messengers. Well, they enter a village of the Samaritans because on the western side of the Jordan River, where the three major regions are, Galilee, Samaria in the middle, and then Judea in the south, in these three areas, you have to pass through Samaria to get there because you have the Jordan River to the east and you have the Mediterranean Sea on the west. So Samaria is inevitable. It says there that one of these villages of the Samaritans did not receive him because, 53, because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. They know, they know where he was going and they can also tell from his dress and from his religion and from his name. They know he's a Jew. They know that he's not a Samaritan. The Samaritans were a mixed race. They were partly pagan and Assyrian because in the time of the destruction of the northern kingdom called Israel and their capital city of Samaria, therefore this name of the Samaritans, in that area of the northern part of Israel, the Assyrians, a foreign people, came and invaded and conquered the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, and they brought many foreigners from surrounding conquered nations into Samaria and Israel, the northern part, and they intermarried and they became a different race. They also amalgamated foreign religion with Israel's religion, with the false religion and the true religion. They mixed and matched according to their whims and fancies, as, as though they went to a buffet and put whatever they wanted on their plate. They did that, and a part of doing that was saying that Mount Gerizim and only the law of Moses, the four, or I'm sorry, the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and Mount Gerizim, these are the only things that matter. Jerusalem doesn't matter. The temple of Jerusalem doesn't matter. The place to worship is Mount Gerizim. You may recall John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman said, on this mountain in the north where Jesus was traveling, this is, mountain is where we worship. You people say Jerusalem is the place you ought to worship. So that was one major dispute. They despised the Jews because of Jerusalem, and they believed that their mountain, Mount Gerizim, was the place to worship. That was one reason. The other reason is they believed that just the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, was to be followed, not the rest of the Old Testament. So if they believed the rest of the Old Testament should not be followed, then they would consider it man's books, men's traditions that should not be followed. Well, the Jews didn't believe that. They believed in all the books of the Old Testament that we believe. The 39 books of the Old Testament, the Jews of Jesus' day, believed in those same books. So, for those two reasons, they had great hostility toward one another. That's why it says they did not receive him because at, at least those in that village, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He was an outcast to them. Well, what's happening is right and, and good in the sense that Jesus is passing through Samaria and this dispute is a legitimate dispute because the Jews kept their ground, at least on those two points. 
They didn't give up Jerusalem and the Temple of Jerusalem, and they didn't give up the books of the Old Testament, all the books of the Old Testament. That was good. But the proper response was, uh, the, was not coming forth. It was wrong. The response of James and John was, 54 says, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume it? Now, Jesus, it says in 55, he, but he turned and rebuked them. Because Jesus rebuked them, we know that whatever they were desiring was wrong. What they desired was wrong. And if you are using the King James Version or a similar one, there are other manuscripts that say in verses 55 and 56, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Whether or not we have those words of Christ actually said at the time and in this passage, we know from His rebuke that what they wanted was wrong. What they wanted was wrong. It says in 54, they wanted fire to come down. When did fire come down from heaven? They would have had two examples of that at least Elijah. in the time of Elijah in 2nd Kings chapter 1 the, the evil king was sending his commanders and their 50 men 50 soldiers a commander with their 50 there were three sets of them the first two sets came and they came with an arrogant attitude and they came with insistence that Elijah show himself to the king to the evil king the king and Elijah were at odds with each other. But Elijah called on fire to come down from heaven. He said, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down. And fire did come down, and it killed those soldiers. Just like that, instantly. It happened twice. Well, the third one came, and the third one came uh, bowing down and, and with humility, and he pled for his life, and he said, don't let it happen like it happened to them. Um, so he came with the humble attitude, and Elijah didn't call on fire to come down. The other example, what's the other example in the Old Testament? Genesis, Genesis 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. There, it's not that anyone on the earth called for fire to come down. It was the Lord, according to Genesis 19, 24, and 25, it was the Lord who called upon the Lord from heaven to rain down fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. That is... The pre-incarnate Christ, Christophany, Christ was there near Sodom and Gomorrah calling upon the Father and saying, I've inspected this place for it, to everybody's satisfaction so that nobody can accuse God. Here's an example. I've come down. I've seen this place. These people are wicked, wicked exceedingly. So it's time now for fire to come down. So it consumed Sodom and Gomorrah even though that was a lush region near a body of water which we now call the Dead Sea. It became a salt heap, it became a ruin, it became a smelly place and a fiery place, uninhabitable place from that time forward. Okay, those are the two. That's, I think, what they have in mind here. The problem, why did Jesus rebuke them here? And why did uh, God do it against Sodom and Gomorrah? And why did God do it against the men of the evil king of Israel in 2 Kings 1? Because Elijah was a prophet and what he did was right and good. What's the difference and what's the problem? 
I think the problem was that their lack of patience, their arrogant attitude, we're dealing with arrogance in, the, in these last two incidents, their arrogant attitude, their condescension towards others, their lack of patience towards others, caused them to immediately have this knee-jerk reaction. And this is probably what was going on inside them, and it showed with their request. And that's why Jesus rebuked them. And if we take the longer version of verses 55 and 56, it does say, uh, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. They had the wrong spirit, the wrong desire for it. They had a desire of vengeance, not the glory of God. Now, I believe we need to take this approach because I think the false interpretation for this passage is that Christians can never and should never pray a prayer of imprecation against somebody. There are those who take this kind of passage and say, Christians should never expect God to bring about justice against their enemies. In the New Testament, we're not supposed to do that because the God of the New Testament is a God of love and the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. Because he's preoccupied with his holiness and righteousness in the Old Testament, he's very quick-tempered, God is, and his people are, and he exhibits his wrath uh, quite frequently and even willy-nilly. That's what they think of the God of the Old Testament. He's a capricious God, arbitrary God. But the God of the New Testament, He's long-suffering, patient, kind, forgiving, merciful, gracious, and uh, extremely loving. And so this is the way we ought to be as Christians. That's the false interpretation. This passage is not teaching that at all. It's not teaching that we can never and should never desire God to carry out justice against our opponents. And we know that because Jesus himself in Matthew 23, Matthew 23, 29 to 36, he does wish for them to sin and to receive the guilt of that sin when God inflicts punishment on them. Let's read that passage. Jesus would not contradict himself. We know that as the Son of God. Matthew 23 and verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build tombs, the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation." Jesus rebukes the scribes of the Pharisees here. He calls them serpents and brood of vipers. He says, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? He's saying you are a hopeless case with that question. And he's calling on them to fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Verse 32, continue sinning until you reach the full measure of your sin. 
And how will they reach the full measure of their sin? Verses 34 and 35, he says, I am sending you prophets. Our gentle Lord, patient Lord, is sending prophets, wise men, and scribes. It's Jesus sending them. He says, I am sending you, these men. Some you'll kill and crucify, some you'll scourge and persecute from city to city. Why? Verse 35 gives the reason why. That, or in order that, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. That means that Jesus is setting it up. He's wanting them to sin and heap the guilt and punishment of that sin. That's the quite opposite of Luke 9, isn't it? And why? Because Luke 9 was on a false premise, because there was an evil motive, but not Matthew 23. One more example. There are plenty of New Testament examples, but one more example is Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. The Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel, and he's got an opponent. He's preaching the gospel. Acts 13, we'll pick it up at verse 6. Acts 13, 6. And when they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, they, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. In this case, the Apostle Paul was opposed by Elymas. He rebukes him, calls him several names, and rebukes him, even inflicts a punishment upon him, a blindness, immediately, right? So he didn't wait uh, a day, he didn't wait a week or anything like that. He, it happened immediately. And a good result, the proconsul believed, when he saw the judgment of God inflicted upon an unbeliever. So a good result. Now, one more passage, because... There are all, always those that say, well, the, the apostles and the prophets could do it, but we can't do it. We can't pray like that. We can't pray for an affliction to come on anybody. Well, actually, James answers that for us. James chapter 5. James 5. He tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Verse 16, James five sixteen. So then he gives us an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. 
Elijah prayed both ways. He prayed for a, a drought and famine, and he also prayed for a blessing and abundance. He prayed for infertility, and he prayed for fertility. He prayed for both. And both prayers God answered. And he gives us Elijah as an example. Now one may say, oh no, but he was a prophet. No. It says in verse 17, he, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So when prayers are answered by God, they're not answered on the basis of whether one is a prophet or an apostle. They're answered on the basis of whether we are righteous and our, our motives are righteous, which James addressed in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. He addressed the motives. If we ask with right motives, God may be pleased to answer them which he answers too, according to his will in James 4, 13 to 17. So if we pray with the right motive, we are asking for a right result, a good result. God, if he chooses, if he wills, he may answer accordingly. That's all there in James. And that's there for us, that we might follow the same. So when Jesus rebuked them, he rebuked them because of evil, they had evil motives. However, it says in verse 56, and they went on to another village. There was another village, and presumably in Samaria, because they needed to lodge there in Samaria. Right? So another village in Samaria did receive them. And so the opposite occurred. The opposite occurred, that is, they received them, so there was a friendly relationship. There was the teaching and preaching of the gospel. There was appreciation in the other village. One village of the Samaritans rejected him, but another one received him, which indicates what? Whether Jew or Gentile, even Samaritan, a mixed race, it doesn't matter. If they have faith in Christ, that's all that matters. Because Acts 20, 21 says that he, the Apostle Paul and others, went about preaching repentance to both Jews and Greeks, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who. That's why Abraham was saved by faith in Christ before he was circumcised. Before he was circumcised, so that he could be an example to the uh, uh, uncircumcised Gentiles, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And even in the New Testament, Jew or Gentile, the gospel is for both. It's not for just the Gentiles in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was not just for the Jews. It's for Jew and Gentile. That's what really matters. To receive Christ by faith. Faith in His death and resurrection. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.